to come. So we find ourselves in the section, the second section of the covenant, which is in chapter 11. Okay? And if we break down this section, we can see that um, chapters 10 to 13 deal with God's uh, graces towards us, his blessings that he gives us. This This is monergistic action from God. So in other words, this is what he's doing in us. This is his work. So we see last time in chapter 10, the effectual call. Right, the effectual call. What is the effectual call? Just to kind of review a little bit. What is the effectual call? Ellie? When the Holy Spirit actually works through a general call in the gospel to person and actually gives them to new Right. So the general call is the gospel message that goes out. All people can hear that. But effectually, that's when the Spirit actually accomplishes the work and draws that person to himself. So, yeah, very good. And so the effectual call comes, and if you, if you look at how the confession is laid out, 10 to 13, it has a logical progression in how things take place. So first, you're effectually called, and we liken the effectual call to what? Regeneration, right? Regeneration. So we have to be made alive. We're dead in sin. So before we can do anything, we, we must be regenerated, and that is the Spirit's work in us. He regenerates us, and then through that, He changes our desires, He changes our affections, to desire the things of God, and then we see what the, the calling of the gospel, and we say, we want that. We, we desired faith in Christ, and that is something that God does in us. So from our perspective, it might look like, oh, we're making the decision, but zooming out, seeing behind the scenes that it's God who first made us alive, right, because we were dead, and a dead person can't do anything. Uh, so we must be made alive before we're able to uh, come to Jesus, and it's the Spirit that draws us. Okay, good. So that's the effectual call. Now, the effectual call logically is going to follow then justification here as well. So it's, you see this logical pro- progression, chapter 10, effectual call, chapter 11, justification, chapter 12, adoption, and chapter 13, sanctification. Okay, so we're looking now at uh, chapter 11. And then we can look at later, uh, chapters 14 to 18 deal with man's response to God's work. How then do we see man's response? So you could see, like, sometime after the effectual call and between justification, you need faith, right? Well, faith is man's response to being made alive. And so they categorized 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, and assurance as man's response to God's work. Okay? That makes sense? So we're going to look at chapter 11. Chapter 11 is dealing with justification. And there's six paragraphs here. We're going to take our time going through this. My goal is to at least get through half of chapter one. We might, if we're lucky, we might get more uh, than that. But um, we see six paragraphs, and we can outline the chapter this way. Chapter, or paragraph one is going to be the nature of justification. The nature of justification. Chapter two deals, or paragraph two deals with the instrument of justification, Paragraph 3 deals with the basic, the basics of justification, or the basis, sorry. Uh, chapter 4, or paragraph 4 deals with the timing of justification. Paragraph 5 deals with the ongoing fruit of justification. And then paragraph 6, justification and how that relates to Old Covenant believers. Okay? Now, justification is one of those doctrines that is very crucial to us as a Reformed Church, Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of the Reformation, 
right? And the Reformation, if you can sum it up under one chief doctrine that came out of that, it would be a recovery of the doctrine of justification. Uh, Justification is that this legal declaration, this legal standing that we are made right with God, that it comes by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Martin Luther would actually say justification is the article or pillar which the church stands or falls. Okay, so this is very crucial. Uh, Owen said justification is the first principle of the Reformation. R.C. Sproul says if we lose it, we lose Christianity. If you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be a church and falls into apostasy because it is the article that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Okay, so this is a very crucial doctrine. It is a doctrine we die on. It is a hill we die on. We, we, we uh, fight for that. Um, and it deals with how can a sinner be declared righteous in the sight of God? How can one who is, as we understand the doctrine of total depravity, totally depraved, right? And God being holy and perfect, how can we stand in his midst and be accepted? Not only that, but be declared righteous. How does that happen? How can a sinner be in the presence of a holy God and not receive the condemnation of guilty? And so it deals with the righteousness. How do we have righteousness? It deals with that. And it's the righteousness that God gives us. Now, this is also something that a chief doctrine of uh, the Reformation that distinguishes us from the the, uh, Roman Catholic Church. Okay, The Roman Catholic Church is going to hold to some kind of mix of justification and works. They would actually call this infusion. And in Canon 9 of, excuse me, Canon 9, they say this, if anyone says that a sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Okay, so strong language. And the, the, the Reformation is going to say, no, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, not of anything that we do. So to justify is this legal term. It's, imagine you're in the courtroom setting, and all the evidence has been laid out, and the judge comes to give a verdict, right? We either hear in present day's judge, we hear either guilty or acquitted, Right? Innocent. In this case, the judge room of the throne of heaven, God is on the throne, and he is looking at us and gives a declaration, a legal declaration of our standing before him. Right? And the declaration will either be guilty or righteous. Right? And so justification, if you're a believer in, in Jesus, if you have faith in him, he actually declares you righteous. And the confession is very clear to say it's not because of anything you've done. It's not because of your meriting any bit to the law or you contributing any bit. It's fully by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his righteousness alone. Okay? And so this is this courtroom setting. This happens. It's a once for all. The verdict comes in. The hammer uh, comes down. And the verdict comes justified, righteous, guilty. Okay? So then the, the question comes, how can we as sinners be declared justified? How can God 
justify a sinner. Right? And this brings up, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it brings up this conundrum. Right, Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Well, we are those who are sinners. Are we inherently righteous? How can then can God declare us righteous? And the Roman Catholic Church would say, actually, if, if you're holding to this kind of doctrine, it's because it's some kind of legal fiction. It's impossible. So we have to have some kind of intrinsic righteousness in and of ourselves for him to actually declare us righteous. Okay, and that's where our confession picks up. It's dealing with these things here. So in chapter 11, paragraph 1, we're going to see here the nature of justification. The nature of justification. So let's just read it real quick together. So um, if you have your confession, you can follow along. Chapter 11, if you have the uh, hymnal, you can follow the Westminster and you'll see the differences. We'll explain some of those too. And then uh, if not, just listen and we'll uh, review it. So it says, paragraph one, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them, as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is a gift of God. Okay, so very thorough paragraph um, here, which is talking about the nature of justification. Okay, so notice first off, it talks about the connection between the call and justification. Those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. So here, here we see the relationship. It's the same group of people. The same group of people we saw in chapter 10, which deals with those who are effectually called. right? And so zooming back, we even say those who were predestined or elected, those are the ones who are called. So that same group of people... In time and space, when God does call them, he will justify them. Okay, so there's this relationship here in which if you're called, you will be justified. So Romans 3, we see this about the justification here. Romans 3, 23 to 25, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, so there is justification for us. It happens not because it's some legal fiction. It happens because we have a representative. We have a representative who also paid for our trespasses, but also earned our righteousness, and by his blood we receive forgiveness, and by faith his righteousness is imputed to us. It's reckoned to our account. And then in Romans 8.30, it says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Right? We brought that out, that that is the effectual call. Those whom he called, he also what? Justified. So you see that natural progression there, and we call this the golden chain of redemption. Okay, Those whom he also justified, he glorified. This is what we call the order of salutis, the order of salvation. And this is not saying, oh, well, this happens, and then times, there's a time span, and then this happens. It's to say there's a logical progression. Some of these things actually happen simultaneously. 
So regeneration obviously has to come first before we're justified. Um, and then this also assumes conversion, which is faith and repentance, right? Because we can't be justified if we don't have faith. So it's assuming that in there, and the reason the confession doesn't go there is because it categorizes it as God's works and then our response, right? So that's how they chose to do it. And so in this golden chain, we see regeneration. We're effectually called. We're, we're made from dead to life. We're given a heart of stone to, we're given a heart of flesh from a heart of stone. No longer are we uh, enemies of God now. We've been made alive. And then we've been given faith, right? Faith is something that's a gift. And that faith latches onto Jesus. And what does that do? Based on our faith, based on who we're resting in, then the legal declaration comes righteous. So faith is assumed here. And, and like we said, this is the logical order, and many of these things might even be simultaneous, instantaneous. But the logical order is we need to be first made alive, we need to have faith, and then we'll be justified. Okay? Justification is a one-time action where God bring, brings down that verdict and announces you righteous. Okay? So then we're dealing with what is the basis of justification. Now, any questions, comments up to this point? You know, tracking along. If I use theological words that might need some expl- explanation, just let me know, and I'd be happy to explain those as well. Uh, Proverbs seventeen fifteen: He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Right, and that's you know as we get into Romans. We'll see um, later on, you know, as we read the New Testament, it's God who justifies the ungodly. So how can that happen? And it's this answer of the justification we have in Christ Jesus with his imputation of righteousness that answers that God can be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So we look at a courtroom and we look at a judge and we would think of it horrendous if someone who is guilty of all these crimes is just you know, let go. And not only that, that, but also declared perfectly innocent and righteous. And so it would be, you know, this crazy thing, right? It would be unjust. But the only way this could actually happen if someone who does come, who represents us perfectly, who earns the righteousness we need, who also pays the punishment uh, we, that in our place, uh, that God could then consider us righteous. So the question then is, what is the basis of this justification? Is this a legal fiction, like some of the Catholics might say? Well, the next part of our confession, it deals with answering those questions. And it does so through three denials and three affirmations. Three denials and three affirmations. Rome would say, you have no basis for this unless there's some intrinsic righteousness within you. Unless you're actually doing something, unless there's some kind of infusion of righteousness that God has given by grace that you then do, then he can do, uh, declare you righteous. And what we're going to see is if you have an accurate understanding of law gospel, if you have an accurate understanding of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, so covenant works, covenant grace, uh, you can see how you, can't, how you can answer this question very good. It's through Christ's representation. It's not a legal fiction at all. Uh, Luther and the Reformers would say, this righteousness that we're talking about isn't infusion, it's an alien righteousness. 
Not that there's like aliens in outer space, but alien just means outside of us, right? So it's the righteousness of someone who's outside of us, who's not bound by sin, but someone who is perfectly righteous that is credited to our account, right? It's a true righteousness. This isn't fiction. It's a very real. And so that's what they want to bring out here. Notice, again, kind of a direct antithesis of the Catholic Church. Not by infusing righteousness into them. Right? That's very clear. Uh, Roman Catholic Church teaches that these, the, the sacraments in, are infusing you with grace, which then would produce righteousness in you, which is basis for your justification. So not by infusing righteousness. So infusing is the idea of Okay, let's say you have your, your milk and then you have your chocolate Ovaltine. I used to drink Ovaltine when I was a kid. Um, and you pour in the Ovaltine into the milk and then you stir it and it becomes one. Right? And so God's grace is that Ovaltine that mixes into, your, into you and then you become this new thing. And that new thing then uh, produces intrinsic personal righteousness. Awesome. Yeah, I, this is very, very important to uh, understand because this is the wedge that, you know, uh, outside of the church uses to uh, show that we really have something good inside of us, after all. And understanding that we don't, that's the, kind of like the key dynamic that separates uh, Christianity. Right. Right. And one of those things, too, is kind of how we've gone through and understood kind of a doctrine of man and total depravity and all that, right? There is no good in us. Um, even, you know, when uh, God does save us, we're still sinners in the flesh that are dealing with sinful flesh. All right. Though we might be, have received this legal declaration of justification, we still wrestle with sin, right? And the thing is, God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not just saying, well, you were mostly righteous. Oh, you, you know, you're more righteous than these people. No, he demands absolute perfection. And so our conscience should automatically accuse us. We cannot stand before God in and of ourselves. Not even, you know, they would believe that, well, when, when they're baptized, that they, those, the slate is clean, and now you can produce these works. You can do something to earn it. But then, if you sin in the meantime between those things, you need to go back to the sacraments and keep doing these re, uh, repentance things and and penance and all this stuff in order to wash the state clean again. Uh, but that's not how uh, this works. That's not what we're talking about, how you're accepted with God. You don't have to go through some priests. You don't have to go through some rituals or pay this money. It, it comes by faith in Christ. Okay, so not by infusion, but notice, but by pardoning their sins, by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. So you see these two things. Infusion versus accounting. Or as later on we're going to see, imputation. Okay? Um, this is the basis which God accepts you as righteous. It's not by infusing, you know, this kind of goodness and works and grace in you for you to go and produce it in and of yourself. But he pardons your sins. Right? And he can't, he's not just sweeping it under the carpet. He's actually forgiving them because someone is paying for them, as we're going to see here. Christ Jesus pays for our sins on the cross. He's our substitute. And then he accounts for us righteousness. He accounts per, uh, to their persons as righteous. Notice he's not 
He's not saying, okay, well, I'm just going to pour my righteousness in you. Uh, he's, he's declaring you righteous even though you're not, intrinsically. Because someone else represents you. And notice he also accepts you on that basis. So rather, um, our, our sins are receive this pardoning by the work of Christ on the cross. And through that, we receive forgiveness. But if all we had was the forgiveness of sins, if all Christ did would die for us, what would that do? That would leave us at zero righteousness. The slate would be wiped clean. What we need is active, positive righteousness, obedience to the law, do this and live. And, and what justification is saying is you are righteous. You're not, just, you're not just neutral. You're actually righteous, positively righteous. And that's what Christ Jesus does for us by accounting for us this. He's actually fulfilling the law on our behalf. As a representative, his righteousness is placed on us. Our sin is placed on him. He pays for it, so we receive pardoning, and then we receive his righteousness. So it's not because we're personally righteous in and of ourselves, but because we have righteousness by faith, the righteousness of another. So let's turn to Romans 4, and Paul brings us out a little bit. Romans 4, let's, uh, the proof text here that the confession gives is verses 5 to 8, but let's start at verse 1. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness. Notice that term there, counts. Righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Okay, so he's not just counting, not counting it because he's like, ah, you know what? Well, let bygones be bygones. No, he's actually having our sins paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. Through his blood, we have forgiveness. But like we said, his righteousness was reckoned to his account. It was counted to his account, uh, to the believer's account, because Christ actively obeyed. Ephesians 1.7, speaking of this pardoning, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to his riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight. So for Roman Catholics, you need infusion of righteousness. For the Reformation, what is it? Imputation of righteousness. Ellie? As a uh, raised Catholic,
the works that you wrote for sin. Kind of reminded me of that in the old days when we used to do sacrifices and the priests would do it. And you have to go to the priest. It's like you're living in the past still because Jesus isn't going to cross anymore. He is And that's one thing that um, that we really understand. You know, for Luther, who was a Roman Catholic priest, um, what he really struggled with was all the sacraments and everything and penance and all that that the Roman Catholic Church was doing, but he knew his sin. And he knew, how can I stand before a holy and righteous God? It's not by these things. I still know my sin. Like, I would go and con- to confession. I would, he would say, I'd, you know, I'd go do all these things, but right after that, I'm all, my thoughts condemn me. And he had no hope. He was constantly living in fear of God, and he was growing angry towards God, because how can a person be righteous with this kind of system like this? He, he said, we can't do it. It's impossible. But then when Luther was reading Romans, and it started bringing out, well, it's by faith. It's by resting in Christ's righteousness. He's the righteous one. That's credited to our account. And once he understood that resting, uh, literally, that gave him rest. Uh, that he understood, okay, there's my hope. That's where my faith lays, is in Christ, not in myself, because I'll never meet that perfect standard. Only Christ did. So here we see, uh, when we see this uh, this understanding of accounting and accepting, um, I want us to think imputation. I want us to think double imputation. So this word imputation is um, is like the word count. Uh, account. So we have this bank account, right? And our bank account is completely negative, debt you'll never pay. Uh, he doesn't just pay off the debt, but he transfers in there millions, billions of dollars to where it's this positive righteousness that you can never, never blow through. And it's this righteousness. That's the kind of righteousness that's credited to our account. Uh, it is, that's the amount of what Christ has done. And, and, and you think about that. He took our debt upon himself and paid it in full. But not only that, he gave us all the righteousness that he earned here on earth by his obedience to the law as our representative. That's credited to our account. So when, Jesus, when God sees us, by faith, he sees the righteousness of Jesus so he can say, righteous in my sight. And he accepts us based on that. So that doctrine gives us so much comfort because when we struggle and sin in life, right, we can understand our acceptance with God isn't based on our obedience or lack thereof. Yes, we strive to be obedient. Yes, we strive out of love and gratitude to please Him. But when we fail, God's just not going to be like, okay, well, now you're out. Oh, you blew it this time. No, we see Christ paid for those sins. And so what do we do? We confess, we repent, we look to Jesus, and then out of love and gratitude, yes, we seek to be obedient all the more. And that's really sanctification. That's the process of sanctification. But your justification is secure because of your faith in Jesus. It's not dependent on you. So that's what we're going to see continually as we go through this this, uh, confession. To say in any way that it's part of us is then to say uh, the work of Christ really is not enough. You just need a little bit of something. So justification is fully satisfied. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
There's a double imputation. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. That's a glorious exchange. So justification means that the wrath of God has been satisfied and we've been accepted because the righteousness of Christ has been placed on us. And again in Romans 3, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So think about it. And we're going to get to that in, you know, later on when we talk about Old Testament saints. But everyone who ever believed, who was ever a believer, God is passing over their sins and he's placing them on Christ at the cross. And by his death on the cross, they receive forgiveness. But not only that, by them looking through these types and shadows, they're actually receiving the righteousness of everything Christ would accomplish and it's credited to their account. But it doesn't happen in time and space until Christ actually does it. That's why he has to come. That's why he has to be born of a virgin perfectly uh, into this world, putting on humanity, going to the cross, blood being shed. Right? And so all that they looked forward to, Christ actually accomplishes it on the cross. Yeah, we're not going to get through this in this paragraph. <laughs> let's, uh, let's at least maybe start the uh, denials, and, um, denials and positives here, negative and positives. Notice it says, not for anything wrought in them, done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. So we already said not by infusing righteousness, but by pardoning. Again, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. So you don't contribute in any way to your justification. There's no kind of good deeds you can do that say, okay, well, I'm a little bit more justified today. It's all for Christ's sake. So who gets the glory? Christ, not us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ gets the glory. It's all for his sake. It's so that we who realize this would then fall down and worship Christ. It's so then when we realize what we've been saved from, right? Here's that guilt, grace, gratitude, right? We understand what we've been saved from. We understand the condemnation that was upon us, our sins and what they meant and what Christ had to go through. We understand what Christ did necessary for our salvation, earning the righteousness, going to the cross, dying for our sins, that's just going to give a sense of overwhelming love and gratitude to want to live for him. To see the law not as a burden, but as a delight. To do this because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Right? If you truly love me, you'll obey me, not to earn justification, but to show me you're, you're grateful. To show me your gratitude. And that's where Christian, uh, Christian obedience is what it says here in the, at the end, evangelical obedience, that's really what it flows from. It flows from justification. It doesn't flow in any way to contribute to your justification. It flows out of it. It's the fruit. Romans 5. Let's look at Romans 5. Romans five seventeen to 19. Again, we, we see here the... Uh, for Christ's sake, and we see imputation. 
17 and 19. For if, because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to what? Justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Again, there we see um, for Christ's sake alone. And this flows right next into the next uh, denial and affirmation. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. Right? So none of that obedience, evangelical obedience, what do they mean by evangelical obedience? Who has a modern translation? Evangelical. What does evangelical mean? Evangelion. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> what does evangelical mean? Sharing? Yeah? Yeah? Sharing what? The gospel. Yeah, gospel obedience. So gospel obedience means what? Fruit. You hear the gospel, you're converted, and you produce fruit. You produce good deeds. Right? So your justification is in no way based on your fruit, the good deeds that you do. So this is, it's not by imputing faith in itself, right? The act of faith in itself isn't reason you're justified. The act of believing, right? Yes, God gives that, but that's not the basis for justification. Neither is your fruit that you do because you have been saved have any basis for justification, right? It's not anything you can do. Even if you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, your justification, your right standing before God, your legal declaration as righteous in God's sight has nothing to do with your obedience. This is in contrast to legal obedience. Legal obedience is that which we do to earn God's favor. It's, it's in light of the covenant works. Do this and live, right? So that's what we do to you know, earn God's favor. That's what Adam was under. That's what Jesus comes and does for us on our behalf. He earns the righteousness we need for right standing with God. Evangelical obedience is not trying to earn favor. It's the obedience that we do out of gratitude. It's the obedience we do out of love. It's the fruit of salvation. Justification is not based on either of those. The fruit of salvation is our obedience, our good deeds that we do. Justification is not based on that. Good deeds and works are the fruit of justification. Because we've been justified, we do these things. Our good deeds are not the root of justification. It's not the basis. All right, we have three minutes. Any questions or comments up to this point? So we'll preview where we'll go next week. But we'll just see, how is it then? But by imputing Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. What is the basis for our justification? The righteousness of Christ. It's all his work. If we contribute in any way, you're taken away from his work. Christ's active obedience to the whole law and his passive obedience. You'll notice there... um, 
we'll, we'll talk about, a bit about more, more of this next time. But you notice this word, this explicit mention of active and passive obedience is not in Westminster. This is actually something we see in Savoy. And so the Baptists wanted to be a little bit more uh, precise here and follow Savoy. So they have active and passive obedience here to really flush out what their meaning, the basis of our justification is. So we'll go a little bit more to this, but um, in light of our justification and it be solely the work of Christ's righteousness, his active and passive obedience, that means you can't do anything to uh, add to it. You can't do anything to lose it. Christ accomplished it perfectly for us. Justification, we are declared perfectly righteous, not because it's a legal fiction, but because Christ actually accomplished it for us, and it is finished in him. And if you have faith in him, you can rest assured. If you see fruit of these things, like obedience and things like that, you can rest assured your salvation is secure. Because all that the Father gives to the Son, the Son will not lose. Why? Because the, the Son perfectly accomplished the work necessary for our justification. All right, well, let's pray and we'll get ready for service. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, that Christ did it all. That he perfectly, by his active and passive obedience, earned our justification. So, Lord, help us as we still struggle with sin. Help us to put it to death out of love and gratitude for what Christ has done, knowing that you have accepted us based on his work alone. So, Lord, help us to not look at our own uh, merits or our own good deeds as a way to see to earn more favor with you. But we strive to do these works and we strive to do these good deeds out of love and gratitude for what Christ has done for us. So when we stand before the throne room of heaven, when we take our last breath and we, we recognize that we're asked, you know, on what basis are we accepted in heaven? We realize it's by the only way is by the active and passive obedience of Jesus. By his righteousness alone, we stand. So we thank you for Christ in his name. Amen.